You're listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series, where we look at disruption through the lens of opportunity. My name is Willem van der Post, and this is the R&B On The Verge series, where we take a look at disruption, but through the lens of opportunity. And joining me today is the CEO of Exaro Mpolisi. And I want to get straight into it, Mpolisi, and ask you, traditionally, Exaro is viewed as a coal company whole world is headed towards renewables. How tough is that journey for you? Well, you know, Xaro does see coal as energy. And uh, therefore, we've always said we may be mining coal, but really we are playing in the energy space. And having also gained a lot of insights about how renewables were transitioning in, the, in Europe, uh, way back in 2012, we already made the decision to start playing in the neural space uh, through an investment that we did with uh, Tata Power, a joint venture company called Synergy. And we bid it in the second window for 239 megawatt of renewable uh, wind power uh, over two uh, sites. And so really, um, we have seen ourselves being an energy player I think more and more now what we are realizing, and, uh, and this has been a culmination of watching you know, events as they've been unfolding, especially associated with climate change, that you know, as we go and into the future, uh, the pressures around being responsive to issues of climate change, issues around ESG, that we wanted to be proactive as an organization than being reactive. And so we understood very well that, you know, in as much as coal will probably be having a space to play in uh, into the future, but the share of it with regard to the energy mix will be reducing with time. So, so right now, I mean, coal is still the biggest source of energy on the planet. Is that right? It is still the biggest source of energy right now. Uh, and very worldwide. interesting. Worldwide. And very interestingly, there are even some countries which are still even building new coal-fired power stations. But one cannot run away from the fact that, you know, uh, you know, like any industry, it has the potential of being disrupted. And the disruption can come sooner than you anticipate because at the end of the day, more than the fact that it is an issue regarding you know, climate-related issues, the economics of it is just going to force that, whereby ultimately the cost of renewable will be, as, will be so low that it will be very difficult to justify any new investment into the future, which could be more expensive than renewable. So it is in that context that we also are looking at how coal will probably emerge in the future. And therefore, why not take the opportunities today when there's opportunity to really play in this new space, not take that advantage? And perhaps help set that trend as opposed to being forced to be delivered into reacting towards a trend that someone else had set. So, I mean, let's get a bit granular for the man in the street... What is the current renewables versus coal price matrix? And where do you see that in sort of the 2050 space? 
Well, you look, uh, today, you know, we're talking about renewables being somewhere around, you know, uh, 60 uh, South African cents, you know, uh, as compared to coal, which is 90 cents and above. And of course, it depends on uh, the age of the power station, mm -hmm. because the older power stations, obviously, um, you know, the costs, you know, given the fact that uh, the the technology is rather old, maintenance uh, that is there. So those stations will be producing power at a much more expensive, probably of over one of one rand. So well, let me, am I hearing you right? Are we already at a point where renewables are cheaper than coal? Oh, definitely, that is a fact. Uh, I think the only one uh, current, uh, I wouldn't call it downside. But the one thing that probably prohibits renewables really becoming the new base load is the fact that you can't store <laughs> the sun right now or, and decide for it to be utilized at a later time uh, to the extent uh, that until battery storage is a very, very mature technology, that then becomes the disruptor, the real disruptor, when you can actually store power and utilize power as and when you need it mm. uh, you know during peak times when it's in the evening uh, and uh, you need energy it's dark. as it's <laughs> when you need energy at that point in time it would be nice if you could actually harvest that sun during the day and store it and then utilize it at night at that peak time when there is the highest cost of energy that you are that uh, a consumer is consuming so I think the, 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 the whole space of um, energy uh, battery storage uh, is, becomes a real um, reality in terms of uh, its development, its maturity. That's when you will, and then if you look at the total cost of energy, including that, once that price point is, is there, especially also if you're going to be playing more distributed than, you know, big, you know, monolithic type of uh, gensets. That's when the whole game is going to be turned upside down. So we haven't flipped over into the use of renewables mainstream by virtue of what sounds like availability of that type of energy. So day, night, when the wind blows, when the wind doesn't blow. But in addition to that, the value chain needing, I suppose, advances in the storage space, readily available. But we also have some other issues, specifically in South Africa, as regards legacy infrastructure. We've got ESCOM mm. uh, and the old way of managing the grid. Where are we? Because, I mean, energy touches everyone's life. Absolutely. Where are we as regards this ESCOM unbundling? Is that a good idea? Does it make economic sense? Like, what's your view on that? Well, I think we all uh, have come to appreciate the fact that in this current business model, ESCOM will not survive. Um, I think we have, a, we have an entity that has failed to transform itself, uh, to reinvent itself over the many years. And probably what is, this is one danger in any organization where it is a monopoly, that there is no pressure, unlike you have in Europe, where the whole market has been liberalized. Competition is coming from all sectors. You know, you've got gas coming in from as far as Russia coming into the main European markets. So in a market like that, you have to really be always at the cutting edge 
in terms of innovating yourself to continue to survive. So the notion of breaking ESCOM up is, is actually the right one uh, because you've got three parts of an asset of which one is really struggling, which is the generation one, but the transmission part of the business is a profitable business, and of course you also have distribution. What then does happen is that it actually starts almost liberalizing the sector in a way such that you know players now can actually not have to only depend on ESCOM as being the customer of the power that you are generating through these long-term PPAs, but you could have a transmission operator that actually owns and operates and buys power as from wherever it wishes to buy from, wherever it's the cheapest, and be able to distribute it and t- take it to where the market needs that power. Mm-hmm. So that will really open up the space and allow real competition to take place, to allow f- trading to take place. And that will be probably the start of a really vibrant new uh, economy and opportunities that will flow out of that. So the three parts is uh, generation, and then did you say distribution Trans- transmission? Uh, transmission and then distribution. What's the difference between transmission and distribution? Transmission, transmissions are the big lines, you know, uh, that you, you will see when you're driving down the freeways. Uh, and then that gets down, downscaled into the your distribution system, into the municipality, which then ends up ending into your house. You right. know, so uh, you don't touch the big ones. So are we then saying um, that the private sector is going to get involved in all three of those phases of the value chain? Or are we only saying from a South African perspective on the generation side? Well, remember, you will always have a system operator for the transmission because, I mean, it's just so capital intensive. The infrastructure is already there. The distribution infrastructure is already there. It's the ability to tap into that. Mm. So to try and create another infrastructure that would be just not economically viable, what will probably start emerging is more distributed, uh, smaller grids, whereby in communities and in areas, you know, you can have much, much smaller smart grid systems where now with the advent, advent of technology, you can have smart grids where AI is able to be deployed within those systems with smart metering. And that's where we can probably start also start trading amongst ourselves, you know, without having to actually go via another system. But ultimately, we will be always wanting to be linked to the main grid because that's the main grid that enables you to even trade right across the whole platform. And I suppose geographically across the entire country, across the it might entire. be raining in Khating and we need power in yeah. the Western Cape or the exactly. other way around. Exactly, exactly. So you want to be able to, but what it also does do is that, you know, where power is required, let's say in one part of the country, you don't have to, wait, you don't have to depend on power that's going to come all the way from up here, uh, from, from, from ESCOM, uh, only to feed you know, because now the PPA is with ESCOM up here. And so you could have small players integrating into the, into the transmission line with a company that is buying that power at source there and delivering it closer to the market where the power is required. Ngalisi, you've used the word PPA twice. What is, what is PPA? It's a power purchase agreements. Right. 
Uh, so those are the contracts that you have uh, in terms of selling your power to another party. Could be a, a party, could be a, an, an industrial player, you know, who is requiring power. So you set up a whole facility and installation and you enter into an agreement with them that you will provide them power for so many years at a, part at a particular price point and uh, with whatever escalations, annual escalations. And do that way you're giving them certainty of power, mm. uh, you know, in an uninterrupted manner. I see. I see. Okay. And then I had another question, which I think maybe just to illuminate the landscape a little bit. The individuals that listen to this podcast are typically in one of two minds. They're either enterprise-minded or they're residential-minded. And I suppose the whole ESCOM and South African power situation has touched individuals personally in their private lives. Mm. How, much, how much of the total power required relates to residential private use and how much of it is enterprise use? Oh, now, I'm, unfortunately, I don't have those particular stats with me. But to your point is that I don't think there's a single South African that has not been impacted one way or the other by the recent outages that we've been experiencing over the number of years. Uh, with same with the you know with the public you know um, commercial sector, so and we know what the impact and the devastation it does have onto the economy and the whole confidence of the country in terms of attracting foreign investment. So this thing is real, and to the extent that we can get an ESCOM that is stabilized, to the extent that we can liberalize also the whole uh, energy sector in um, in a way that can enable new participants to play and, 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 and being able to generate and being able to utilize these, the, the, the facilities that are available, transmission facilities, the better it will be for the country in terms of energy security going into the future. The, the, the challenge, I think, what we need to be very cognizant of in South Africa is that in as much as, in as, much as you know, the whole issue around climate change is one that is real, is one that we have to ensure that we do the best that we can uh, with regard to mitigating, you know, the, the, the challenges that climate change will bring to bear if we don't, if we just leave everything unchecked. We also have to be very cognizant that in South Africa, we are confronted by a very huge social issue where we've got high levels of unemployment touching close to 30%, over 50% youth unemployment, the highest Gini coefficient in the world in terms of inequality. And the question is that how do you, given the fact that a lot of these people within the communities that they are, they are dependent and some of them are pretty much having jobs in, in, in that part of the uh, energy sector that is really, is currently producing uh, energy utilizing coal. How does, how do you deal with that in a very realistic, in a very humane way in terms of transitioning that source of energy to a new source of energy? I suppose all that transition will encompass uh, a requirement for different skill sets, different way of thinking, different business models. It's not a light switch that you can just flick. No, it isn't, because you are really dealing with people who every day, you know, for us, for instance, who are in the mining part of, uh, of, of, of coal, 
these are people who are every day are knocking at your gates, you know, at your doors, looking for employment. And, uh, and can you just imagine one day out of the blue, you say, well, there's no more coal-fired power stations that are going to be turned on. So coal mines stop, coal power stations stop. What happens to the people? What happens? what happens to the economy? Yes. Okay, so what we are advocate, advocating for is that it's a transition that enables renewables as old as other you know older power stations are, are are being switched off you are then able as as they come to the end of their life is the commitment that we should not probably be building more coal-fired power stations. Instead, they should be replaced. But there is also still a, a gap in terms of meeting the current existing energy requirement where you can fast-track that part with renewable energy. But you're going to have to take the people along. You're going to have to reskill them. You've got to be very systematic. A lot of countries, basically, I don't think there's a single country in the world that has gone from one source of being coal to, to, to renewables by the switch of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a by the flick of a switch. They've always had long transitions to by and large being also subsidized by the governments to introduce these new technologies because their price points were very expensive. They were not affordable, but they took a systematic view about how and how they want to transition over a number of years. I mean, it's only now that we are still even hearing Germany, who've started this transition quite a long time ago, to say their last coal-fired power station will probably be switched off in 2039. Okay. So, and yet we are advocating that everything should be stopped now. Uh, that's just not Seems realistic. Seems foolish in that context. That, I mean, that, uh, what country would do that to itself, to its people? Yes. So, yes, let's transition. Let's have a roadmap for that, a roadmap that everybody understands, a roadmap that can ensure that on one side there's the new economies that can be created around renewables, the new skills, new jobs that can be created while we are systematically also reducing on the other side. So this introduces the, I suppose, threat and opportunity set at the same time associated with 4IR. Mm. The universities aren't teaching these exponential technologies as yet because they themselves are organizations that need Mm. to undergo transformation and change. The consequence of which is that a company like Exaro, who views themselves as an energy company and not just coal, Mm. uh, will typically need some of these new skill sets. But where do you as a leader find these skills given that the varsities aren't producing them? You create them. You've got to create them. I mean, by and large, these skills are not there, and therefore you've got to be proactive. That's going to be your differentiator, is how you start creating new skill sets that's going to give you a competitive advantage to be a first mover in these areas. And if you're not going to do that, and you're waiting for government to be training and skilling uh, for, for people for you, you're going to miss the boat. Now, you also have shareholders that say, oh, but hang on, we understand our current business model. We've been good at it. We've made some good money and therefore been successful over a period of time. We understand this core of our business. What you're advocating now in AI and non-MBAs and PV, that's outside of our skill set. How do you walk that tightrope of getting investors and current shareholders that have current shareholder demands to think about the future as tangibly as this? Well, look, you will always have that conflict. You can't run away from that conflict. You will have those uh, investors who will say, just only focus on coal. And if you have to be the last guy to switch off the lights, then be the last guy. But then I say, and my response to that is that 
you have the choice of making whatever investment you want to make. At any point in time, you can come and invest in me, and when I'm no longer attractive to you, you can just leave. I've got a responsibility to create a sustainable organization for the future so that it continues to do and, be, and create positive social impact into the future. And yes, in that future, the all stakeholders' needs will be met. There will be the societal stakeholders. There will be the investors who are looking for a return. And we're saying that like any other organization that has transformed themselves over the years, yes, as you move forward, there will be new opportunities that will be created. So is the, is the landscape of our, of our investors going to change into the future? Yes, I think it will. There will be those who will be very attracted by us wanting to play in a much more clean world, you know, in clean energy world. And to them, they will be attracted by that investment thesis. And there will be those who will say, well, you know what, maybe I need to go elsewhere. I hope they don't, because at the end of the day, they themselves are going to be questioned by their own investors, especially those pension funds that are investing in them as to say, what how are you responding to climate change issues? How are you responding to ESG issues? Because our investment in you is about a sustained world that understands the critical issues around poverty and seeing a life that is beyond just being profit-motivated. Yeah. So I get the sense that it's got to be purpose-driven. So I get a sense that a lot of those who are still resisting today, they will be under an, a tremendous pressure for themselves to actually transform and start thinking, because otherwise they themselves will be disrupted. I saw in August that the roundtable of CEOs um, in the U.S. got together and started lobbying for changes in legislation to take cognizance of the difference between companies that are purely profit-driven and those that are purpose-driven and also try to make profit. And I'll make a prediction to say that I think in the not-too-distant future, we will find that public-administered money won't be allowed to chase profit-only driven enterprises. You know, life is about purposeful existence. It's about having meaning about what is good for society. So your purpose should be, how do I make this world a better world? Because in essence, what you are actually doing in that is that you are creating your own existence for a future where people will want to be associated with you because you bring meaning, true purposeful meaning into their lives. And I can tell you right now, any company that thinks they will survive in the future only being driven by profits, they are going to have a very shocking and a rude awakening. People want to be associated with organizations that are talking about creating big social positive impacts in broader society. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Nkolisi driving the future of Exoro with purpose 100% in his crosshairs. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Willem. You've been listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series. For more solutionist thinking, visit the R&B website.